Well, good morning, everyone. Hope you are all doing well, and uh, we are beginning a new series this morning, uh, Nuclear Family, uh, Source of Power or Destruction. And as I was just really studying this week and just really praying through this and just reading a lot, uh, I wanted to start with a, with a quote from Irma um, Bombeck, uh, a 20th century columnist that I, I feel that she, she did a really good job just kind of uh, painting a picture of the family. This is what she wrote, the family, a strange little band of characters trudging through life sharing disease and toothpaste, coveting one another's desserts, hiding shampoo, borrowing money, locking each, out, each other out of our rooms, inflicting pain and kissing to heal it in the same instant, loving, laughing, defending, and trying to figure out the common thread that bonds us all together. I thought that you really nailed it. That, 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 that is the picture of a family. And as we embark on this new series, Nuclear Family, Source of Power or Destruction, I do so knowing that we all have vastly different experiences when it comes to the family. For some, recollections of the family or even our current situation brings anxiety and pain and hurt. While for others of us, when we think about the family, um, it, it is the source of our identity and purpose and also our belonging. Perception of the family and our future in the family is largely based on our experience. And experience is the default roadmap as we move into the future. So as we start this new series, the purpose is not to elevate some certain culture or certain time as the apex of, of the family structure or what it means to be a family. But what we want to do is to get into the Word of God and in an intellectually honest and a spiritually honest way, extrapolate what God has to say about the family. I believe we need to do this as we do in all series, is we're going to need to proceed with grace Understanding that, that we have a collective experience of hurt and pain in this area. That we have a collective experience of, of missing uh, what I believe is what God has envisioned for us and the family. But I also believe in order for us to get to the heart and mind of God, that we can't simply just uh, move forward on what we think we know. Remember, our past experience is the default roadmap for our future. And what we need to do is take a look at where we've been or maybe where we are and have a holy discontentment and say, you know what? I believe that God wants something more for me in this. And to re-examine what he has to say about the family. Again, the purpose of this series is not to convince you of some cultural apex of societal uh, idea of, of the family, but to begin a conversation about what it means to be a family in the, in the eyes of God. 
And my prayer is that, that by the end of this series, we will no longer see the family through our broken lens, but we will be able to see clearly with God's eyes. Will you guys pray with me? Dear God, I just um, pray for this time. I just pray for each and every one of us. God, I just pray that, that we can be honest with one another, that this will not be a place of conflict, but we can honestly look at what your vision for the family is. And that where we find gaps or misdirection, that we can have a conversation about how to course correct or, or bridge that gap. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I was preparing for, for this series, I really uh, wanted to approach this in a way that, that you didn't feel uh, that I was presenting you my ideas. Because honestly, my ideas on the family do not matter. What this place is about is trying to extrapolate God's ideas on different aspects of our life that we believe that the, the Bible uh, is the authority to speak into every aspect of our lives. So my hope and my, my uh, dream for the, this is that we'll come out with a clear understanding of at least God's view of the family. Now, I've come up with three different realities that I want to just uh, talk to you guys about today. The first reality is that no one has a perfect family. And the, other real, and the continued reality is in the 1950s sitcom family is not a picture of a biblically successful family. You know, I'm sorry, Happy Days, you know, the Cunninghams, and, uh, you know, that's not a picture of, of a biblical family. You know, the, you know, uh, uh, you know Lucy and, and Ricky, you know, you know, as much as we love those shows... Uh, you know, those, those, are, those are a cultural uh, phenomenon in a, in a certain time and place. And the reality is families are much more complex than any sitcom can present. And the problems that, that, that families uh, uh, go up against are much greater than, than something that can be resolved in 30 minutes on TV or even be resolved today. And that's why it's so important that we move forward in community. So in the spirit of moving forward, this is what I'd like to do. I'd like you to ask, ask you to open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 18. And this is the first place where we kind of get a, a beginning of a picture of what God's view of the family is. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. Now, I just want to pause there. This has been a verse that's been the source of uh, men being tyrants in the, in the past. But this, this verse is not intended to say, you know what, Men are, you know, the lords over, over women and, and, and that you see the Bible says that you're just, need, you know, meant to help me. So go make some turkey pot pie or something like that and bring it to me as I sit on my lazy butt and watch, you know, cops or something like that. This is not what 
God is trying to communicate. In fact, the word helper here in the Hebrew is azar. And this is the exact same word that is a descriptor of actually God, that David uses this. Check out verse uh, Psalm chapter 54 and verse 4, or chapter 54 and verse 4. David writes, but God is my helper, my azar. Now, David is definitely not saying God is meant to make me turkey pot pie and do everything I say, right? While I sit and do nothing. That is not the intention. This, this word azar is so much larger. And check out this next sentence. This is so cool. The Lord keeps me alive. The azar keeps me alive. That kind of gives a little different picture of it almost. I mean, you could probably almost go so far. I don't think the scripture is saying this, but you could almost go so far as say like this azar is just like, you know what? Man, it's not good for man to be alone because he's going to die on his own. He needs a helper because he's such an idiot, you know? And again, that's taking it probably a little too far. But, but you know, on the other end, it's definitely not the, the, the opposite of, of, you know what, that, that the woman is meant to be some sort of a servant, you know, to the man. That's not what is being communicated there. In verse 19, we continue, it says, So the Lord God formed the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to man to see what he would call them. And the man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. Isn't this kind of interesting? We're talking about the, the beginning of the forming of the family and God's doing a live presentation of the Discovery Channel, right? I mean, Adam's sitting there and, and you know, at the beginning, it's like, it's not good for man to be alone, but you know what? Let's do a little, this, this little, like, you know, Discovery Channel thing. So, you know, man's sitting there and he's watching and, 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 and God's like, you know, here come, you know, the orangutans and the elephant. Isn't that cool? And stuff like that. Why? Like, you ever ask yourself, Why? Is this section of Scripture in the middle of the forming of Adam and Eve? Well, it continues on. But still there was no helper, there was no Azar, just right for him. So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. Because men always fall asleep while watching TV, right? I mean, that just, you know, just... <sighs> While the man slept, fine, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought, them, and he brought her to the man. And then the next words are amazing. He says, at last, the man exclaimed, at last? Why did he say at last? It's not like he knew, or did he? You see, isn't it amazing that God just didn't plop Eve there and give him a helper right from the beginning, that there was this, this idea of discovering, this discovery channel that was going, and he's like, hey, two elephants, 
hey, two koala bears, you know, hey, two aardvarks, but no, and you know, it says, but there's none suitable for me, you know, you know, the aardvark. So he falls asleep, and then he sees Eve in all her splendor, rocking it. And he's like, at last, at last. And he's really excited that God gave him the relational space to understand that he needed a helper, that he needed a, you know, a savior to, to bring him and, and to create this, this family unit. And then he goes on, he says, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman, you know, because she was taken from the man. And this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. For the two are united into one. And here's the first picture of the beginnings of a family. That this, this kind of this development, this understanding that, that, you know what, we are part of all creation. And that the, and the realization of, of Adam was that it wasn't good for him to be alone. And that, that a woman somehow in that relationship completed his experience in life. Now, this is where we get our, our traditional kind of uh, idea of marriage from. This is, this is where, you know, you see the bumper stickers and you see all, all that kind of stuff. You know, people like to point back to uh, Genesis chapter 2. But some people uh, uh, have said, well, what about the other um, marriages in the Bible and kind of as a, as a counterattack have created a graphic, and I'm sure that you've seen it on Facebook, your friends posting it, and things like that, where they've put up marriage equals, and this is not mine, somebody else created this as, as, as an as a attack against, against uh, a marriage between a man and a woman. And they've gone through the Old Testament, and they've, they've brought out different kind of descriptors of, of different things that have happened. Like they look at Genesis uh, uh, later on, I believe, in chapter 38. And, and you know what? It, it was tradition in um, the Hebrew nation that if a man died and, and had a wife, that his brother would marry her and, and, and take her in. So they got the little skeleton guy and, and stuff like that. And then we all know that, you know, like Solomon had lots of concubines. And so they got like the man plus woman plus this little concubine, like I dream a genie girl and stuff like that. There was also, there was a law in Deuteronomy that, that if a man raped a woman, that he would, they would have to get married. Again, this is, this is cultural things that, that happened. And, and there's a lot of cultural things that, that uh, go into that. And we can have a bit long, a bigger conversation about that later, but um, or man and, and woman uh, equals property, and then this kind of this other idea numbers where you know women of foreign nations would would uh, convert to Judaism and and be married to a uh, Jewish man, and all of these kinds of things, and 
And basically this image here, this graph is meant to say, see, there are all sorts of different recognized marriages in the Bible. And let me just say that this uh, is, is a straw man. This is a, is a debate tactic uh, of creating something uh, that, that, that appears to be uh, truth, and you, you put it up, and then you knock it down. One of the most beautiful things about the Bible, one of the things that, that, that is different about the Bible than every other uh, book, uh, religious book, is that it, that it is, uh, talks about reality. And there is differences in the, in, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are uh, descriptors, just there's narratives that are describing what happens. And then there are things that are prescribed, that things that are saying, God says, this is the way that uh, it needs to be, that this is my glorious standard. And here we have, in this graphic, we have the prescriptor that this is God's vision for the family, or, or at least for marriage. And then we go into basically, besides this one, um, the, these, this kind of idea of this is just describing what is going on. And this is very common in our faith. And this is one of the things that makes the Old Testament so endearing in the New Testament is that the account of our heroes are very real. That when you look at Hebrews 13, the heroes of the faith, and our heroes of the faith are filled with drunkards and prostitutes and murderers and adulterers. It's not that God is prescribing all those things, but He doesn't hide it either. That the Bible is not a cartoon or a two-dimensional character book. That it is a recorded history of God's interaction with people. And with people missing the mark of God's glorious standard. So I think when we see things like this, we, you know, especially in this series, that you know what, we could spend all day talking about people behaving poorly or not, you know, living up to God's glorious standard or things like that. And we can pull out lots of examples and we don't even need to go to the Bible to get those examples. And these are all true. I mean, they're all legit. They happened. But not once God's saying, hey, you know, Solomon, good job, man. You know, really like, you know, why don't you get a hundred more concubines? Wouldn't that be great? There's none of that prescription. It's just like saying, hey, this is a guy. And this is really his life. And this is his encounter with God. Now, the other very interesting thing about this is there's no New Testament examples. Because by the time of the New Testament uh, came around, that, you know, and, the, and this is the second reality, that there are cultural differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament. You see, very often that people approach Scripture with their 21st century sensibilities, and you just can't do that. I mean, they didn't have screens and internet and transportation. They couldn't fly around the world and, and experience different cultures. They didn't have, you know, the medicines that we have and things like that. And you got to understand that cultures evolve, 
And that some things that, you know, what some cultures had to do, like, you know, our great-grandparents or our great-grandparents uh, in the Depression are things, thank goodness, that we don't have to do. And they had a different values because of the times that they lived in. So what we see here is that there are some major cultural differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament and where we are today. Israel in the Old Testament, that they had three different levels of family relationships. There was the, the big one, which uh, was the 12 tribes of Israel. These were the, from the 12 sons of Jacob, who was the son of Abraham. And, and this is where we get our 12 tribes, tribe of Benjamin and, and, and Levi and, and all of those different tribes. And then, and that was called the Shavet. That's the Hebrew word for tribe. Those are the 12 Shavets of the Israel, of Israel nation. And then within that tribe, there was something called a Mishpachah. And that was a clan. And the, the clan was more like to determine the, basically who you're directly related to in some way. And we understand this, you know, uh, Shannon and I have a, Irish and Scottish uh, heritage, McNeese, big surprise, right? And uh, when we got married, we, uh, we got married, or I got married in the McNeese Tartan, our clan's Tartan. Not that, like, I was directly related, but there was just some sort of identification there. Uh, Madison's friend, I was driving them somewhere, and she was, she was going through all her cousins and second cousins and, and all of these, and I think she got to like 50 or something like that, that she could figure out somehow that she was related to. Again, this would be her Miss Paca and this idea of like, you know, this is her clan. And then we get to the Batav, and that's really when we start to get to the idea of family that we know, that this was the basic unit of the Israeli family structure. Betav would uh, be kind of similar to what we know as the nuclear family, but except think about it as, as maybe like an Italian family where, where like the, grand, you know, the mother and dad are there too and the, and the cousins and everything and, and they live all in, in really close proximity. You know, kind of this extended family, but a tight-knit family as, as well. So, you know, in this idea that in this evolving of, of the culture and, and discovery process, of what is, is the ideal picture of a family of God. Remember, God allowed Adam to discover. He let the people of Israel discover. And then by the time of Christ coming back and, and as bringing in the new covenant, that there was a completely different understanding of the family unit. Even Jesus himself had this kind of this idea of the nuclear family, right? Jesus was born and raised by Mary and Joseph. And, you know, we, we see a picture of them traveling together, like you know, to Egypt as a family unit, that they stuck together, that they would go to temple uh, together. They even lost Jesus, you know, like we lose our children. I mean, just very similar 
It's very similar, you know, kind of upbringing in the sense of, of the family structure. And then, you know, he's his brothers, James, and, and, and all of the, um, those things. In fact, by the New Testament time, that monogamy uh, was, was the norm. And uh, even Jesus talked about this idea of, of marriage as being in a, an eternal bond in Matthew chapter 5. And then as we get into the epistles uh, and, and Paul's writing to the churches, then we even have a greater kind of uh, understanding of this, this idea of the family and how a mother and father are taking care of their children. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1, this is very interesting. Again, it's not a direct commandment about the family, but we can definitely, if we're, if we're honest, if we're intellectually honest and we're spiritually honest, that we can say, you know what, it's reasonable to conclude that this is the picture of the family. And he writes this, if someone aspires to being an elder, to being a leader in the church, he desires an honorable position. So an elder, a leader, must be a man whose life is beyond reproach. Okay, so we got this picture. If someone needs to, you know, wants to be a leader of the church, that they have to live this life that is beyond reproach. So what are some of the, the qualifications of this leader in the church? Well, number one, he must be faithful to his wife. Solomon could not be a leader in the New Testament church just couldn't. You can, you know, that's just, that he has to be faithful. You couldn't cheat. You couldn't have adultery. That, that, you know, this picture of a man being completely committed to one woman. He must exercise self-control, live wisely, and have a good reputation. He must enjoy having guests in his home, and he must be able to teach. He must not be a heavy drinker or be violent. He must be gentle, not quarrelsome, and not love money. And then we get back to the family. He must manage his own family well, having children who respect and obey him. Larry Coffey uh, uh, proofread uh, the slides and everything, and, uh, and he's all like, he's like, who, who can be an elder then? Because, you know, yeah, and, and, I, and, and I took him back, and it's like, manage his own family well. Not good, not great, well. <laughs> and having children who respect and obey him, I think that's a, you know, not always, right? I mean, that's not like, I mean, we're not getting unrelated. Not unrealistic, just there's, you know, that we want them. You know, this is the idea. We don't, you know, that there's a spirit of this. And then this is really important. For if a man cannot manage his own household, how can he take care of God's church? Now, again, that scripture is talking about church leadership, but for our purposes, it really paints a picture, doesn't it, of kind of a, a family structure. If, if, if we want to be honest, it does. But having seen all of this, there is a third reality. And the third reality is this. 
God will redeem any brokenness in your family that you entrust to him. And this is not true. This is not only true for the family. This is true in every aspect of your your life. That I've seen God redeem depression and anxiety and substance abuse and 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 he is redeem he can redeem anything and he can even redeem family that's how great our god is and paul talks about this in romans chapter 8 about just how god redeems and covers us with grace and says you know what just because you've missed the standard doesn't mean I don't, do not love you. It doesn't mean that all hope is, is, is gone. On the, on the contrary, that it just gives me the opportunity to love you all the more. Romans chapter 8, verse 25. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. So if our families are not where we want them if they're not healthy, biblically functioning families. This idea of being patient, waiting on the Lord. And the Holy Spirit helps us. Again, here's this idea of helps. Helps us in our weakness. Are we weak in our families? Are we weak as, as husband or wife? Are we weak as father or mother? Are we weak as, as, as children, um, you know, respecting and honoring their parents? Well, the Holy Spirit is going to help us in our weakness. And I love this next part. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for. But the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. To me, that's one of the most beautiful scriptures in all of the Bible. One of the most beautiful promises that when your hurt is so great and you do not even know what to pray for. When your family is such a mess, maybe you've gone through a divorce or you're going through a divorce. Maybe your kids are rebelling. Maybe you're not speaking with your husband or, or your wife and you hurt so bad that you can't even put words to it. That God's promises to us, you know what? I will interpret your groanings into a fragrance of prayer for God. And then he goes on in verse 27, And the Father who knows all the hearts will know the Spirit is saying, for the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. And then this beautiful verse, And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Again, this idea that God, you know what? Even when bad things happen, that God will, make, will redeem it if we offer it to him and let him heal it. I look at God as a, as a, as a, a master artist, that he takes the broken shards of our lives, he takes the broken shards of our family and reassembles it into a beautiful mosaic that we could never envision. And some of our families are a result of that beautiful mosaic from our brokenness of the past. For God knew His people in advance and He chose them to become like His Son. 
And this is where we get into kind of the family reference again. So that his son would be the firstborn. The firstborn of who? The firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That's us. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them a right standing with himself. And after giving them a right standing, he gave them his glory. You see, the picture of the family is a physical representation of God's spiritual family. And that we carry the name of our father or our mother or our ancestors adopted into God's family, we are adopted into His glory because He made us in right standing with Him. And here's the final reality that I think encapsulates everything. In Scripture, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's a, there is an inferred, and I, again, I'm just, I am trying to be as intellectually honest as I can. There is an inferred um, vision that the family is one man married to one woman in a monogamous relationship. And that that family brings, if God blesses them with children, that they raise that, those children up to be followers of Him. But it is also clear that God's love is abundant and that God is a God of grace and God is a God who is a master artist who can take the shards of our past hurt and brokenness and make a beautiful mosaic. I've seen them do it. But finally, it really comes down to this. Like uranium, the family can be a source of great power or great destruction. And my prayer for the next several weeks as we dive into, you know, deeper into the family unit and the family structure and God's vision for the family that we will be able to forge the foundations to build a legacy of a biblically functioning family. You guys pray with me. Dear God, I just uh, thank you for this time. A place where I believe we can, uh, in grace, really explore your word a place that we can honestly approach and ask questions. God, I thank you for being a God that, that is not afraid of any question. God, I thank you for this place as we come together and, and we can get together in smaller groups throughout the week to really have a discussion of what this looks like. How does this unfold in our daily life? Lord, I just pray for those who are hurting who have been hurt in the past because of family, who are currently hurting because of family, that you will give them the courage to allow you to interpret their groanings and to redeem their pain. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.